Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is September 10th, 2021, and if you're like me, you're still recovering from the opening NFL football game of the new season. While I'm perfectly willing to debate whether the Bucks or the Cowboys are better, we have a number of FDA and pharma industry news that is much more important. First up is drug pricing. Kathy, you wrote in today's pink sheet that CMS is looking at a variety of alternative payment models through its Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, just as the effort to bring drug prices is just now starting to heat up. Yeah, that's true, Derek. It, it is um, an interesting time. Um, so, yeah, the, the basis of that story was an HHS report that was requested by President Biden in a recent executive order. Um, the report itself includes a range of mostly familiar policies for lowering drug costs, and they are both administrative, like those demonstrations that I focused on, and legislative. Um, and just to sort of review quickly, the, the main legislative policies supported by the administration are direct government price negotiation in Medicare, with the prices negotiated by the government also available in the commercial market, um, a redesign of the Part D benefit that would include a cap on out-of-pocket spending for beneficiaries and also some kind of penalties for price increases that exceed inflation. Um, the, the discussion of administrative policies includes some new information on the kind of payment models that could be tested through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. I focused on those in my story because to date, CMMI Director Liz Fowler and CMS Administrator, Administrator Chiquita brooks Lashore have been pretty reticent about what models might be pursued. Um, and just as sort of an explanation, these models could be transformational because they can be designed in a way that waives statutory restrictions for the purpose of the experiment, and they can be expanded nationally uh, by HHS if they're considered to be successful. So in theory, these models could be a way for the administration to bring about significant reform if legislative efforts fail. Um, that said, it doesn't sound like the administration is currently planning to go that route, at least not yet. Um, nevertheless, so a, a number of the possible models not noted in the report um, uh, would test approaches to lowering drug costs in Part B with an emphasis on promoting the use of lower cost alternatives like biosimilars, generics, and cheaper brand alternatives. Um, none of the Part B models appear to focus on cutting Medicare payments to providers the way a controversial Part B demonstration that was proposed during the Obama administration did. That one got strong opposition from physicians and patients and was ultimately withdrawn. So maybe the Biden administration is looking to avoid a similar fight this time. Um, finally, the report comes as Congress is negotiating drug pricing reform policies that would serve as spending offsets to the proposed a uh, $3.5 trillion so-called Build Back Better <laughs> legislation. Um, despite the support from the administration, there are signs in the Senate, at least, that some policies like government price negotiation may need to be watered down in order to get enough votes from moderate Democrats. Um, for example, the idea that HHS negotiated prices would also be available to the commercial insurance market may be losing support. 
Despite strong arguments from employers in favor of that policy, employers are very worried that if prices in Medicare are cut significantly, manufacturers will raise prices to private insurance to make up the difference. Um, so there's fierce lobbying going on now on both sides around the drug pricing provisions and also partisan pushback over the scale and cost of this, this bill, um, the Build Back Better bill. So the next month or so should be very interesting to watch to see how this plays out. So I guess, I guess the, 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 the I guess that Mike, you pretty much answered my question, which was how, how does this how does this go, you know, work into the whole fight over whether or not they can negotiate prices or not? But I guess, you know, does, so does this mean that, you know, I mean, the, the models are going to, you know, could they provide, you know, a reasonable alternative to substitute that if they can't get the votes for negotiations? Yeah, I, you know, in theory, I think they could. I, I don't think that, um, you know, a model like that would really survive the pushback. So I do think that that the administration is likely to take, you know, less controversial approaches in the models. But the reason that there has been a lot of attention paid to, you know, what the administration is thinking about doing with these models is for that reason that I said that they could, in theory, you know, really be transformational. Um, you know, the kind of thing that the Trump administration tried to do with that most favored nation policy, which did involve, you um, uh, government price negotiation, you know, it, those things could be done um, through CMMI, although, you know, so far, no administration has done that. Um, they do get, they, they, they do have to go through sort of a regulatory process, notice and comment. And, you know, there is a lot of pushback when, you know, significant cuts have been proposed. So, Kathy, it's interesting uh, that uh, the Biden administration has chosen to release this stuff now as the congressional uh, debate on uh, the drug pricing provisions is reaching ahead. You know, they, this report was kind of transmitted uh, um, a little while ago and they, you know, opted not to uh, um, you know, sort of have a public rollout then. But, uh, but now that we're kind of offering, you know, what could be sort of alternatives to these more uh, um, uh, sort of kind of, uh, you know, direct uh, uh, negotiation uh, options that are uh, being pushed on the, uh, in the Hill, do you see this as sort of kind of as the the Biden administration trying to sort of kind of uh, calm the waters here, or sort of kind of why are they why are they they rolling this out right as the uh, um, as the markups are going on? Yeah, I'm I'm kind of of two minds. I mean, in one way, I wondered if some of the you know reiter reiterating the support for like direct government price negotiation, extending those prices to the commercial market, if if that might be you know to try to you know, increase support for those ideas in Congress when they when they see support sort of waning. Um, that's one thing. On the other hand, um, the fact that they are beginning to, as you said, release some of these other ideas might be a way to, you know, sort of demonstrate that they are serious about doing something, you know, and could be viewed as sort of an alternative to, you know, failed efforts in, in Congress. It seems like interesting to me now that they would release it because it does seem sort of important to kind of have the sense of what the president would really support as the lawmakers are kind of set up to do something mm -hmm. that even for many Democrats is a little bit, um, mm -hmm. you know, 
I guess, controversial, or there's a number of Democrats that I think are concerned about going as far as some in the House and Senate want them to go on drug pricing. So, you know, if the White House backs certain policies or proposals under, you know, consideration by Congress, I think that could give the extra little um, push um, they may need to get things done there. It could be. I guess we'll see. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and you know, at, at the same time here, we, you know, it, kind of leading into this, um, the uh, uh, se- several industry, uh, pharma industry executives had a had a briefing um, uh, for reporters basically to, you know, to uh, come out strongly against the idea of, of negotiating drug prices. And, you know, uh, they, they were talking about how revenue could be reduced, you know, 40 percent if the legislation is enacted and, you know, as many as 200,000 jobs could be it could be cut like directly from some of these companies because they say they their R&D spending would be would be dropping and uh, or be forced down and so forth. And, uh, you know, I, I know this sounds like a kind of, you know, the sky is falling sort of uh you know thing here but I, i'm curious if you if you if you all think these statements are you know if they are you know kind of a scare tactic or are these you know do they really are there accountants and actuaries and so forth all telling them that this is actually going to happen i you know my my take on that was they really didn't raise any new arguments um i mean maybe having some of these leading um executives there to talk about them gave i don't know more gravitas or something to the arguments but um i mean i guess it does show that that uh, the industry is taking the threat of what's going on in congress pretty seriously at this point um i was sort of surprised that the briefing didn't include any new studies or analyses they seem to be you know sort of constantly churning those types of things out but but that just really featured these executives making what are pretty familiar, you know, arguments at this point. I think the arguments they made, some of them sounded a bit more extreme than I remembered in the past in terms of, <laughs> again, the the percentages they were saying they would reduce their R&D or, you know, the, the level of impact it would have. Obviously, there's been groups... Um, and you know, folks on all sides of this, or folks trying to come at it from a very neutral standpoint, that have tried to kind of predict the impacts of these policies. And I think it's really um, challenging for anybody to predict future behavior or how, you know, investors and other players in this kind of whole business sector and healthcare sector will react to the changes. And so, you know, you can. You really get a range of um, perspectives, and there's groups that will point to, you know, the CBO report that came out a few weeks ago that, sh- you know, showed, like, yes, there probably be some reduction in new drugs coming to market over, um, you know, the next few decades because of some of the plans going on in Congress, but it, it really they don't have a sense of, well, what does that actually mean for like the health of people? Because we don't really know what drugs we're losing or gaining. And, um, you know, there's also parts of some of the um, bills at issuing in Congress that could potentially make it easier for some people to access medicine. So maybe there's some companies that might get some benefit from more people buying, being able to buy quantities of their drug. So there's just so many 
factors at play in industry, of course, is um, always going to kind of ring the alarm bells if um, they're worried any of their prices are going to have to go down at all. Yeah, it's certainly a, uh, a playbook that uh, um, the industry has used uh, uh, time and again to uh, to great success, uh, you know, sort of issuing these warnings and uh, preventing, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, direct government action on uh, drug pricing. I was uh, struck by sort of kind of the, the two the two tacks they were taking as sort of the, uh, oh, we need this money for R&D, and then sort of the um, argument that sort of kind of, if you, uh, if you go down this road, they will, you'll um, be denied uh, drugs because of, uh, um, you know, government, uh, government bureaucrats. And I think the um, government bureaucrat argument is probably going to be more uh, effective uh, uh, for them in terms of sort of kind of, you don't want a, uh, um, a gatekeeper between you and your, uh, your medicine as opposed to the, the more tried and true, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the high cost goes into R and D uh, um, argument, which seems to be at least according to sort of the, uh, the polling that I've been looking at, sort of kind of seems to be losing its, uh, its impact with the public. So they, uh, um, they're probably wise to, uh, to shift to this more uh, um, access uh, argument as opposed to uh, to research argument. It seems like, though, uh, on the one hand, Congress has tried to do a decent job in this, you know, phase of the drug pricing legislation of trying to make it hard for pharma to make that, you know, the government's going to control what drugs you get access to because they they haven't crafted a plan where, right, they're going to, at this point where there's going to be like kind of restrictive formularies or more limits on what people get access to. Um, that wasn't like the stick they've turned to, I guess, to get prices lower, which doesn't mean they won't at some point, I suppose. And I guess industry would say government is controlling, you know, what you have access to again, because if they control the prices more, we're going to put out less. But that I think is a bit more complicated. But anyway, it did, it did seem like over the past couple of years, Democrats have tried to prevent that sort of government restricting what you're getting argument a bit. Yeah, I think, uh, go ahead. I, I, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I, I think what, what industry is trying to, to use is that sort of lower prices equals less access, you know, argument, which is a little less direct, as you note. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm a novice at this still, but I mean, if you have, just for sake of argument, the, the cure for cancer, and you go to the government and say, We're, let's negotiate a price for the cure to cancer, are they really going to say, you know, really going to play hardball and say, like, we're only going to pay, I mean, make it up 50 percent of what you want to charge and risk not getting the cure for cancer? I mean, are they you know, are they going to recognize you would think that at some point, you know, both sides would recognize like some kind of whether it's a blockbuster drug or something that's really trans, you know, like transformative type of medication as opposed to say, well, hey, we've got the 25th statin. And they're going to say, like, we're, you know, the government could come back and say, hey, we, you know, we've got 24 other ones. We all know they all work. You know, we're not going to pay a premium for that. I mean, you, you would think that that, you know, if you're negotiating that that kind of, you know, discussion would occur, right? I I think so. I, I think, um, you know, one one issue is that as we're entering an era where there are more of these cures, um, but they're very, very expensive, you know, you do kind of get um, a situation where 
there, a lot of these things are adding up, you know, I mean, Mm -hmm. if it's one, you know, treatment, that's $2 million, that's one thing. But if you've got, you know, five or, you know, whatever, I think Mm -hmm. you do get to a point where, um, you know, that it just gets to be overwhelming to the healthcare budget in the country. Oh, and you still hear the arguments that, you know, the, the one, you know, the one, the gene therapy that's one shot and you're cured, but it's $2 million saves X amount yeah. of money in hospital costs and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, yeah. for the next 25 years because you're cured yeah. now. Well, so, that's true. That goes, that all goes into sort of this value question, which is talked about so often. Well, I think the, uh, the, uh, a salient example there, uh, uh, Derek, maybe the, uh, the COVID vaccine, and you look at through kind of the, uh, the concern around the pricing of those, and that's obviously a, not a not a cure, but sort of a a, a way out of a, you know a a terrible situation for the globe. And there's still a lot of uh, gnashing of teeth about how much uh, um, pharma companies uh, deserve to uh, to make on those uh, um, on those products. So the the fact that it's uh, um, you know a um, a health uh, a transformative health uh, product doesn't uh, doesn't mean that the uh, um, the, the pricing worries go away. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, bottom line, do we think pharma's got the the juice to get rid of this? <laughs> I think it's a strong possibility. I do but too. I mean, I don't even know if yeah. it's um, because it's they really have very slim margins. Obviously, Democrats in the Senate, and we know there's a, a few senators sort of on the edge about this topic on the Democratic side, even in the mm-hmm. House. Some. Um, folks who voted for HR3 seem a little more concerned about, you know, how we tackle drug pricing now that the Senate could actually also confirm what, you know, now that it's a possibility of actually becoming law, not just the House passing it. There are some members that seem concerned and, you know, it's not sort of surprising why pharma repeats some of these arguments over and over again, because they do seem to resonate and with people and make them nervous. I've seen some people speculate, some analysts speculate that like they think that Congress probably will at least be able to do sort of the Medicare Part D redesign that um, mm-hmm. is probably seen as a little bit more like nonpartisan <laughs> of an idea, but um, whether they'll be able to really get into like the the issues of sort of government drug price negotiation and how that works seems like that's a much bigger lift. And we're dealing with a a legislation on Congress that is like well beyond, you know, healthcare and drug pricing and has so many political balls up in the air to get together. You know, if this was just a drug pricing bill or just a healthcare bill, that would be a huge political challenge. But the fact that it's sort of part of this whole other package, I think, makes it even tougher. And they're trying to get it and they're trying to get it done quickly, too, which is another, you know, Mm -hmm. makes it things even tougher. So, yeah. Next up is a look at opioid policy. The FDA announced a public meeting to discuss the prescriber education portion of the opioid risk evaluation and mitigation strategy. Apparently, the voluntary education program that is currently in place is not effective enough. And the agency, once again, is considering making it mandatory. The FDA said that while the number of opioids dispensed has dropped, overdose deaths have increased substantially since 2012. Studies also are showing that patients are receiving more tablets than they need following surgical procedures. And in light of the concerning data, the agency is considering mandatory education through the REMS and wants stakeholder input. 
This, of course, has been a huge debate spanning many years. I've written about it. Matt's written about it. I'm sure Sarah and Sarah, you've probably written about it, too. Um, I'm curious if you all think that this new data or additional experience is going to change any minds or if you think everyone's pretty much dug in on this. Well, it's clear that uh, FDA has changed its mind on this uh, um, on this question, which uh, honestly uh, surprised me a little bit, uh, given that they've, uh, um, uh, you know, in the uh, drug safety sphere overall, sort of moved away from uh, the more restrictive REMS and the uh, um, the, the the tighter uh, um, uh, control of uh, um, uh, physician uh, um, discretion uh, um, on a lot of uh, different products, but not. Uh, not here, of course, and um, it's hard to escape the uh, the question of sort of kind of is it just because you know opioids are different as a uh, as a class of medicine from a uh, um, you know uh, risk issue or sort of the uh, the politics involved? Uh, um, you know, obviously uh, um, there's a huge public uh, um, health uh, um, issue uh, um, surrounding them, but there's also the uh, the question of sort of can can, uh, um, can Janet Woodcox uh, bid for uh, um, for commissioner be uh, um, be salvaged if she uh, if she gets tough enough on uh, on opioids. So uh, um, I think that's sort of an open question as well. Yeah, I always wonder if you know. I mean, having sat through a number of mandated corporate trainings, uh, both both live and online, as I'm sure many of our listeners have, as is, these are common and accepted. Uh, you know, uh, I I you, you know when you hear the question, does the education do anything? You know. You, you actually have to legitimately wonder that wonder if that is the case. I mean, because, you know, when you're, you know, if you're if you're regularly prescribing opioids and this is your 15th time going through, you know, having to do the the CME that's required or, you know, whatever, you know, it's, uh, you know, you, you have to wonder if you kind of glaze over and, you know, end up not doing, you know, not listening as close as you probably should. Yeah, I uh, I certainly uh, um, uh, feel that, uh, Derek. And and so the the question is, if they if it's just mandatory training, it's going to be a you know probably a huge logistical hassle. But in terms of actual re- reforming behavior, you'd think there would have to be a uh, restricted distribution system, and that's uh, a, a, an even uh, tighter imposition on the healthcare system. Yeah, especially with you know with the, you know, the the subgroup of patients that have chronic pain and need you know claim they need the opioids regularly you know just to be able to function and, and you know that I mean that's a that that's a huge problem because you're just putting more barriers in front of them from getting the the medication that they need. And as like some of the FDA's information points out, like the there's a lot of sh- there's been a lot of shift over the years, right, and sort of the cause of sort of a lot of the opioid overdoses and, um, you know, moving to the the illicit drug sphere. And there's always been a question of how to best sort of, like, how do you handle the prescription drug space and, you know, either not shift more people into the illicit space and also kind of like what can, how can better managing what happens in the prescription space impact whether people do or don't don't shift, so it just it's there's so many moving parts here, um, and yeah, I'm a little bit with you, Derek. It's kind of sort of on some of these behavioral practices and how much is prescribed or when it's prescribed. It's it's kind of hard to imagine that if uh, there's pe- a lot of people whose habits you could still change if you haven't changed yet. But I guess, um, but hopefully they can be. And obviously, we always have new doctors and so forth coming online. 
Well, and, and Commissioner Gottlieb had talked about um, back in early days of his of his tenure, wanting just wanting to shift opioids to blister packs so they right. could so they could limit the number of pills that people are being prescribed. And that I mean, I I think that that got a little bit of the ways, but then I think there were questions about was it uh, was like the expense of it and the changes in the manufacturing process and stuff, and it, it's kind of stalled out and. And everything so you couldn't and and they're still I, i'm not sure if they've ever actually definitively come out with the prescribing guidelines that they were researching where they're saying you know where they could you know try and tell physicians you know after a certain procedure you only need so many pills instead of just giving them the requisite 60 or whatever it is that uh you know come in the bottle the the, the brown bottle so yeah it's like you said, there, there's so many moving parts and you feel like that there's so many things that could be done that maybe, you know, if, if you know, if, you know, but you don't know if like they get one of them done, then if that will make enough of a, of a change to, you know, even to get the, the, um, you know, the, the momentum to do some of the other things. The thing that I would actually, I don't know, I was just thinking about this would be interesting is because you always hear a lot of criticism about how you know, it's a much easier as a doctor to be able to prescribe opioids than to be able to prescribe some of the um, treatments um, that can assist patients who do become, you know, a- addicted to the medications. So yeah. could you somehow combine the, the ma- could you, if you're going to do this mandatory training, could you also do whatever trainings or requirements are related to being able to prescribe, to prescribe, you know, buprenorphine and those medicines and sort of, if you could package that together, could we end up, um, solving that end of the um, p- the problem where we just don't have enough physicians who are certified to um, help patients who have gotten into trouble with opioids. Well, yeah, same thing with naloxone. They wanted to make naloxone over the counter and and they wanted, there was a an idea to make, to make naloxone be co-prescribed with opioids that was explored a couple of years ago too. So yeah, it's, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of, a bunch of things that still could be you know, that potentially could, uh, you know, move the needle here. Finally, today, we're going to take a look at the FDA's Project Orbis, an effort to increase the availability of new drugs for cancer. Project Orbis allows for parallel review of an application among various international regulators. While there's no group decision with simultaneous submission to the FDA in other countries, the drugs can become available sooner. Several countries have signed on to the program, including Singapore, Canada, Australia, the UK, Brazil, and now Israel. But as more countries join, stakeholders are asking whether one of the largest in the world, China, should be allowed to enter as well. FDA Oncology Center of Excellence Director Rick Pazder has signaled a willingness to consider the idea if the necessary confidentiality agreements can be reached. But there is this, but there are questions about whether the U.S.-China tensions overall could prevent such a move. So I'm curious what you all think of this. Is this a is it a is this a good idea in the long run? You wonder if maybe this is kind of a you know a, a fig leaf amid all this tension to kind of you know I don't know if you, if it would jumpstart relations or you know maybe just make some goodwill or something if we could you know work together to approve drugs. I, I don't know what you all think of that. Well, it'll certainly be a uh, a, a huge uh, uh, convenience factor for uh, companies if they sort of felt they could sort of kind of smooth. Uh, um, their applications to multiple uh, uh, large markets uh, um, in this way. Uh, it's interesting that it comes through as China is itself sort of kind of uh, uh, developing a more uh, robust regulatory system and sort of perhaps it's not as uh, um, in, in as much need of uh, um, sort of copying the, uh, um, 
the U.S. approach, as uh, um, perhaps it was a few years ago. Uh, you know, they just approved their first uh, um, uh, CAR T uh, um, uh, therapy over the uh, um, over the summer. So it's uh, um, you know, I think uh, um, sponsors would, would welcome um, a, a more simplified uh, um, set of standards for uh, for world, worldwide approvals. That this sort of kind of what what this could uh, uh, smooth the way towards. But uh, um, they also, uh, of course, on the other side of that coin, want to be able to control uh, um, you know what they uh, what they provide regulators. So uh, um, there's that trade off as well. Yeah, and there's there's always been questions about IP. You know, and 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 so forth, and and you know, and how the Chinese deal with that, and and everything. So that's another kind of uh, you know additional kind of wrinkle that that goes into this. But uh, I I th think Dr. Pastor mentioned in the story that they they could do temporary confidentiality agreements. I think they could cover some of that some of that stuff, and uh, you know, maybe you know, may, maybe that maybe they can get this done. Or, I guess what I'm not sure I completely understand is if these companies are eventually going to be going to China or aim to go to China for an approval eventually, what what data would they be getting from through Project Orbis that the China wouldn't eventually get? Is that's where I sort of if the if this is something the companies are interested in, um, is there sort of really like a U.S. national security political kind of concern? Yeah, it's a it's an interesting question because you know, the idea is to just is to kind of cut down on a project Orbis was to cut down on the delays between filing with the FDA and then filing with all these other countries. So the ones that are further down the list, you know, like the idea because they can move up and get access to these drugs that, you know, close to the same time as the FDA, you know, uh, gives them or makes them accessible. So. Yeah, if if you're planning to go to China anyway, and you're going to submit the application anyway with the data that you would get, you're going to give everybody else. And yeah, we kind of a you know you wonder what the you know if there's some other kind of reason to to hold this you know to to uh, hold up hold it up on it. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.